You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today we're chatting to Sean Newman, author of Lolly Jackson When Fantasy Becomes Reality and Glenn Agliotti, a biography. Sean is now researching a book into Mirror Trading International, a company that broke onto the scenes a couple of years ago in South Africa. Um, and it's, it's really a fascinating story. Before we get down to the nitty gritty, Sean, welcome as always to Chai FM. <laughs> Good to be back. Sean, why your interest in Mirror Trading International? Well, that I think in itself is an interesting story. As, as you're aware, because um, we do talk privately, I, I kind of moved away from writing books and moved on with life. And I had a friend approach me last year, February, and he had lost three Bitcoin in Mirror Trading International. Now, he's, a, he's an incredibly intelligent individual and he's street smart. So it was quite a shock because I'd seen the carte launch expose and followed it a bit in the news. Anyway, he asked as, as one of the favors and multitudes that I probably owe him in this world, um, that I look into it with the view to writing a book. And I explained to him that it's not something that I'm, I'm currently looking at or wanting to do. And he said to me, listen, give me 30 days, go look at it. And if you can't uncover it, then I'm just going to forget about it. Well, that was February last year. And he wasn't lying when he said it would become one of the most interesting stories I ever dug into. He just had this gut feeling that I was the one to to go and do a bit of digging. And it, it's, it's truly turned out to be fruitful and, and mind-boggling. It seems like a very sexy story. You've got people fleeing the country, disappearing overnight, reappearing in South American countries, apparently living it up with mistresses. You've got other people that have been purportedly implicated who have been accused of really living the high life in some of South Africa's top suburbs on the KwaZulu-Natal north coast. You've got all these other factors that are playing in. And then, of course, it comes down to crypto. MTI was named as one of the worst crypto heists in in history and in fact in 2020 it put south africa on the map in respect of crypto because it was regarded as being such a serious case give our listeners a kids overview in simple terms of what happened in mti okay so the simple overview if you can simplify it is is that mti began in in 2019 and had a period where it did what is known as mirror trading, so to speak. So people would sign in under their account, and their accounts would be set up to mirror the trading on the MTI account. Um, Johann Steinberg, we, we know the name, Sherry and Clinton Marks, all these names are around it, and then there's other groups that obviously split off. I actually did an organogram just out of interest um, with a couple of names about six months ago that I probably need to update, and it looks like the London Underground. So there's a lot of names that play into this, and it can become quite complicated. But essentially, things weren't going so great in that, and that was when they decided that it would then shift, or Steinberg and his uh, Steinberg decided that it would shift across to this ideology where they would pool the funds and they would trade it as as a whole. Around about June, July of 2020, obviously with the pandemic in full flow, this came to the attention of the Financial Services Conduct Authority, the FSCA of South Africa, and they began an investigation into Mirror Trading International. And after two interviews with them, 
things started to steamroll. You had the Texas Securities Exchange issue a notice. You had a large amount of Bitcoin frozen on their, their exchange of choice, FX choice, um, in, in Belize. You had all these notices coming out and the FSCA went after them. Effectively, then you have a period of time where they, they continue to pay out and Steinberg then suddenly allegedly gets this mysterious email around about the 31st of November of 2020 that says, we're this really good group that is looking out for you and we wish to remain anonymous, which in the simplified version, we need to go back. Anonymous ZA, which is a hacking group, hacked MTI around about the August and September of that period. So their data was starting to come out already and figures were starting to like really blow up and people were starting to see how much money was involved. He gets this email that says the Russians are after you, the banks are after you, the Freemasons are after you, get out of Dodge as quickly as you humanly can. He literally tells his partners, I'm going to Brazil, but I'm doing a server upgrade at the same time. I'll be back on the 22nd of December. In that period of about 13 days, he goes off the radar by the 15th of December. Now Nobody hold, knows what has happened to him. Now hold that thought. Pardon? Now hold yes. that thought. He goes missing. Nobody knows what's happened. And now suddenly it breaks into the news. We're going to continue this fascinating story straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today we're chatting to Sean Newman about the very interesting story of Mirror Trading International. Before we went to break, he was describing to us what had led to John Steinberg's exit from South Africa and re-emergence in Brazil, disappearance in Brazil, and recent arrest. So let's take up from there. There's a dead man switch. A message goes out to say yeah. all these people are looking for him. He's been hunted. This is following the FSCA investigations, the Texas Border Security investigations, and now he's gone. People are saying, no, he's actually still in South Africa. He's hiding. There's a body double. People are examining footage of him in messages that he sent where they say, if you look, there's a bus behind that bus is yeah. from Rio. And it all becomes very exciting. Now it's a James Bond movie. What happened after that? So then you have this implosion of MTI around about 20, uh, the 20th of December, 22nd of December, 2020. Um, it, it, it just it just absolutely collapses with him gone. Um, you know, during the period of the 15th to the 20th, everything just goes pear-shaped. And then you have a liquidation that appears on the 24th of December. It. The, the strange thing about it is there are two liquidations that actually get filed the same day, 10 minutes apart. One is from an individual by the name of Anton Lee, and the other is by an individual by the name of Stephen Watkins. The two get lodged, and it, 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 sorry, on the 23rd of December, it gets heard on the 24th. The, the whole scenario around that actual hearing and I've got the transcripts like becomes kind of farcical in its nature because the merits of the case are not heard it's clearly something that is happening to to speed the process up here the question then comes into play is we still know that there's this 1280 bitcoin sitting out there with the FX choice which at that stage at the time of liquidation is worth about 400 million rand so you've got all these elements that are coming into play the judge postpones it uh, to the 29th of December and basically says, listen, we've got a bit of opposition. 
there's an advocate here who is trying to, um, who needs time to consult with potential clients who've approached him. We're going to give it four days over the Christmas period. By the time they get, also worth noting, sorry, is, is that this letter suddenly appears before the judge. This letter can be traced back to first appearing on a telegram group and, and uh, certain forums online that basically purports to be Johann Steinberg saying, hi, this is me, this is my last communication to everyone. Yes, it was a Ponzi scheme. Yes, it was a scam. By the way, um, the Marxists are working on their next scam. Here's their email address. You go to have a chat with them. Me, I'm off the grid. Bye. Have a good life. I've taken all your money. This finds its way into the judge's hands that day, along with the metadata. And that's what I found incredibly interesting. And that's when I started really looking at this, is, is, is the metadata, he spelt his name wrong. Not only that, he spelt Sherry Marks's name wrong inside the, inside the letter, and his own name again. So one N instead of two. So the judge takes this, and she, she really goes to town with this. And by the time they get to the second appearance, one of the advocates who, who now appeared to ask for this postponement is suddenly representing the second applicant, Watkins, and has no objection to the liquidation proceeding. And it's, it's granted by Judge Owen Rogers. And that is where things really kick into high gear. So the beginning of Mirror Trading International is this very interesting story about a lot of money and, and the figure keeps changing. So if we go on a rand value of the date of liquidation, you're looking at about three billion rand, sure. according to their reports and according to the back office that the liquidators sit with. What, it, what then becomes interesting is they did eventually sequestrate Steinberg's estate and they've put in a claim for 10.8 billion rand against his estate, the liquidators of MTI. And that's where the disparity of figures start coming into play because you have all these things in the, in the MLM space of binary bonuses and sign-up bonuses and all these things and the trading bonuses and the founders pool. And that's where it all becomes complicated is these figures, you can't really nail it down. So the liquidators' own reports tend to say that there is 3 billion rand that was put into this on the basis of what Bitcoin was trading at on the day. What makes it an even bigger tragedy is we all know what Bitcoin has done subsequent to Steinberg's disappearance. Yes, it's back now, but it is still higher than the date of liquidation. So if you start looking at it, all these people would have eventually gotten their returns regardless because by nature, Bitcoin went up in a massive scale that beat the market. It's fascinating stuff for me because I, I know case law in South Africa says that the investors are entitled to what they invested initially on that particular day. They can't, they can't sue and claim for what may have been. And in, in, in terms of Bitcoin not being regarded as a derivative, but it is speculative, there's so much confusion around it. And having this, this commodity trade at such high prices and, and some of it being recovered and some of it being found and then held, it just makes for a very, very confusing situation. I want to take a break to give our listeners a chance to ponder what you've said. When we come back, we're going to be chatting a lot more about the, the, the subsequent court cases and what happened in court two weeks ago because that's very fascinating. It's not often you hear of liquidators getting a hiding in South Africa. We're going to take a break. For those listeners that don't know, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, and that was the ongoing troubles in Northern Ireland between the Catholics 
and the Protestants, where the British Army opened fire and killed 17 unarmed protesters. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Today we're chatting to true crime author and friend of our, our station, Sean Newman, all about Mirror Trading International. He's given us a breakdown of how Mirror Trading International started, what it was all about, when things started going awry, then liquidators started getting involved. We've heard different amounts of money involved. And I want to find out a little bit more about how much money has, in fact, been found, what's happened to that money. And more importantly, Sean, let our listeners know exactly what happened two weeks ago in court because it was a surprising outcome for a lot of people. Absolutely. So what it basically happened is, is this 1,280 Bitcoin that was held by FX Choice in Belize was returned with, with the help of the FSCA to the liquidators uh, around March, April last year. That equated to when they, when they sold them to a sum of between 1.1 and 1.2 billion rand which I think we can all agree is, is a massive recovery in any kind of scheme, let alone, you know, an alleged Ponzi scheme. So what ends up happening here is this money gets returned. At the same time, you've got these 417 and 418 inquiries that are taking place. Now, for those that don't understand, a 417 and a 418 is basically the, the master of the high court as well as uh, a magistrate in terms of Okay, maybe go back a second here. The liquidators, when they come into come into effect, the provisional liquidators usually approach the court for an extension of powers. That extension of powers is often done on an ex parte arrangement, which means it's only them that are applying. It's without the other party present to to defend the matter or fight the matter. And these powers were granted to the liquidators. In terms of that, they were then able to start these inquiries under magistrates and attorneys. And they started hauling in the, the mirror trading big players. And they, I like to call it questioning. They like to call it interrogating. Um, it's, it's, it's a very harsh wording that is used, but that's exactly what it is. And these are the kind of things that would be pretty much the same as a SARS inquiry. So it's very invasive. It goes right into the heart of your involvement. The difference is, is that it has to be focused around the company itself and dealings with the company. So a lot of these individuals participated in these inquiries between February, March, and April last year. And then come November of 2021, an application is made or subpoenas are sent out again. And it covers people that have already appeared. This time, however, it would seem that the parties decided to fight back. And Mirror Trading International is a very polarizing company. So you had multiple splinter groups within the company to begin with. Nobody really worked together. There was always the schism in the middle. And it would seem like the same thing kind of happens outside of Mirror Trading with those that are either for or against what is going on now. So let's just say I'm not incredibly popular at the best of times because I don't take one particular view. I'm often the subject of a lot of upset because we're having discussions like this. The 417 inquiry subpoenas are then taken by two different groups, one in December to the High Court in Cape Town and one in January of this year, questioning the authority of 
the subpoenas themselves. And the ability to continue an inquiry, is it a new inquiry, is it a continuation? And the judges basically in both the matters felt that there was enough being presented to stay the subpoenas going forward until such time as the return dates, which is 20th of April for the one and 21st of April for the other. The issue then arises in the one that took place two weeks ago is a major question of solvency came into play because the 417 inquiries are based on a company that cannot pay its debts. Now, this is an argument that is perpetuated quite often between potential and reality. And anyone that understands how Ponzi schemes and these pyramid schemes are presented in the media, people generally tend to shy away once those words are used from claiming from them. So the liquidators, by their own admittance, are sitting with potentially 355 million rand in claims. They are trying to work on the ideology that they've got 3 billion in potential claims. And on that basis, the company's insolvent. The people that are fighting them are saying, well, no, you can't go on that. You need to go on what claims you've proven. Unfortunately, the liquidators, for, for their own reasons, which I will interrogate within the pages of the book, declined all claims. They, they, in, so, in so let the me first interrupt meeting you of creditors, they rejected them all. So I do apologize for interrupting you. They, yeah. they recovered over a billion rands worth of Bitcoin mm-hmm. that's sitting in their accounts. Claims Correct. are sitting at about 300 million. They're saying we're not going to pay the claims out because this company's insolvent because it actually owes 3 billion rand. What then happens to the billion rand that they're holding? Well, well, this is the thing, is right now on the balance of the claims that they have, one would believe that they would be able to go ahead with their second meeting of creditors, which was postponed in December and is scheduled for the 4th of February. But the first meeting of creditors where they should have at least started looking at claims, they decided to reject all the claims at that point. The reason for these further subpoenas, it would seem, is to try and verify the data that they are sitting with that was provided by MTI's server company. And the back office is very contentious. In fact, I would probably go so far as to say that the version that Anonymous ZA had is probably more more up-to-date and and correct than the one that the liquidators are sitting with. And there sits very real problems within that data. So they're trying to use these these 417 inquiries to try and statistically come to a head and make a decision that their back, their back office data is correct. But now you've got a billion rand that is just sitting there. And unfortunately, they have got the right to use that in whichever manner they feel in terms of legal challenges. So when these kind of subpoena challenges come up in the high court on an urgent basis in a different town in terms of Cape Town, there are major costs involved so, in this. So I'm going to stop you again. Into the members funds. I need to ask you this. Does that mean liquidators and lawyers are going to be making money from this billion rand that's been recovered and sitting there not being paid out? Well, well, well here's an interesting case because I don't know if many people have heard of Creon. We have. Creon, Creon was a Ponzi scheme, as we know, that recovered a hundred million. By the end of it, ten years down the line, seventy-four million had been eaten up by auctioneers, liquidators, lawyers, all these kind of things, and, and people tended to not get back. Uh, I mean, what? We're talking one cents, ten cents to the rand, if you're lucky. 
The simple fact is, right now, as MTI sits, it, it, it may sound very ideological and very simplistic to say, there is a billion rand, there is 355 million rand. The, the, the chances of it crossing that billion mark at this point don't seem incredibly likely. And that's why you want to get past the second meeting of creditors, past these legal fights where, where the only people making money are the lawyers, and start getting to the guys that email me on a daily basis who are trying to get their 400 rand back well, Sean, that they had in. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to chat to you about whether this was, in fact, a crime committed, considering that there is money available, and how it was that that money wasn't stolen by the protagonist in this entire thing. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're chatting to Sean Newman today about Mirror Trading International. Too much to cover in 40, 50 minutes. What we have covered is there was a crypto trading scheme. Guys went missing. Funny emails got sent. Guys got arrested in Brazil. But... Unlike most scams, money has been recovered. Now, with tears in my navy blue eyes, uh, Shawnee, if money has been recovered and this money can cover what the losses would have been for, for what people invested, does it mean that this was, in fact, a scheme or what, did something really dramatic happen behind the scenes between the founders and the leadership that led to this breakup and these terrible allegations being thrown around left, right and center? Well, well, that's a very interesting question. And if, if you don't mind, I'm going to be a little bit careful in how I answer that because that's some of the stuff that goes into the book that ultimately will explode things. But I think where, where you've got to look at it from a very interesting angle is exactly as you said, there's money been recovered. Does that necessarily mean a crime has been committed? Well, we don't know yet because you need all those claims to come in. And that is one thing I'm going to say. And people need to claim there is money there. So this ideology and and a lot of people saying, wait, and don't do it now, don't do it now, because there's a lot of argument around we should get our Bitcoin back as opposed to rands, you're going to get rands effectively. And there's no two ways about it. So you know, to, to help the liquidation process along, people need to get their claims in as quickly as possible. And that would be based on what you put in, uh, in Bitcoin at the rate. But I think what makes things very interesting is, is we've all heard of AfriCrypt as well. And AfriCrypt effectively would have been, in my viewpoint, the more logical one for the FSCA to have gone after because they were receiving fiat currency, i.e. rands, into a South African bank account. Mirror Trading International took Bitcoin and paid out Bitcoin. So there was no RANS involved, which would make it very interesting on the jurisdictional point of view in terms of the FSCA. So I think it was a, as much as it was a perfect storm for the start of the, of, of, of Mirror Trading and its explosion worldwide, it becomes a perfect storm in its ending as well in terms of the interests that seem to lie on a consistent basis from multiple parties within this company on a consistent basis. What Steinberg is going to face when he comes back, I think that is going to be the very interesting question because we haven't really discussed it, but we both know that on the 29th of December, he was picked up in Brazil. So if you don't mind, can I run through that story quick? You can. Okay, so the guy literally 
is somebody, an anonymous person, reports him to um, to the local police. He is sitting in this province in the middle of Brazil, away from Sao Paulo and Rio, and he's seemingly going about his daily life. Somebody reports him anonymously for using false identification. The police put eyes on him and start following him. And they get to a point where they feel like they can't handle it any further, so they involve the federal police of Brazil. Now, this is where the story takes a couple of twists and turns, because if you listen to one part, the FBI get involved, another part, Interpol are involved. It, it's None of that is verified. So if we just go on the facts, they eventually identify him as Johann Steinberg. The Hawks are aware of it as early as, as the 29th when the arrest is made. He's coming out of the gym, allegedly, and they ask him to see identification. He presents the false ID, and that is what he gets charged for. That it becomes very interesting because he is basically being charged on presenting false identification. It's a, a misdemeanor charge at best with a fine. So when I got hold of the Brazilian police, because there was all this talk about the FBI and they're going to extradite him to America, and then the Americans will attach all the Bitcoin that he has or hasn't got, which personally I don't think he has very much, he suddenly, I get hold of the Brazilian police and they confirm to me that it's perhaps a language issue here. The difference is, is extradition, as we both know with George Luca, is a very long and drawn out process with multiple appeals and a lot of fight and doesn't always work. Whereas deportation, they can put him on a plane and send him home because they just don't want him there. He's committed a crime. He's out of his visa pocket. They make him an undesirable. He's not allowed in the country for 10 years. Goodbye. There's also this talk of, of the girlfriend, which the police in Brazil won't even confirm to me that he was caught with the girlfriend. They feel it's a very sensitive topic that they're not particularly willing to get involved in. So their thought process is, deport him, send him back to South Africa. The question then starts, what happens to him when he gets to South Africa? Is he going to be charged? Because as far as I'm aware, there is no warrant of arrest for him up to this point. So what will you charge him with? Because that is the true question. And a lot of people will say to you, it's theft, it's fraud, it's a Ponzi, it's all of this. But none of that's been ventilated in court. And seemingly, the police investigation into this has hit some form or other glut because the hard drive that apparently contained all the original data has, surprise, mysteriously disappeared. Well, Mr. Newman, please let us know when we can expect to see the book hitting the shelves. Um, yeah, listen, I'm writing feverishly at the moment. Um, there is a potential opportunity to, to, to speak to Steinberg himself, um, and that's busy being orchestrated at this point. But I think there's a little bit more to go before we can put this out. But I think very much like Lolly, I'm looking to set a ground point where people can understand the story. It's, it's incredibly interesting. It's incredibly complex. So trying to break it down into something that is readable, enjoyable, and understandable allows people then to follow forward and with a, with a clear understanding. So it's not saying this one's wrong, that one's wrong, this group's wrong. It's putting all the players into the pot and then trying to let the reader decide again. So it's, it's a time-consuming process, but we're getting there and we're pushing very hard. <laughs> Sean Newman, um, author of the biographies on Lolly Jackson 
and Glenn Agliotti now researching a book that we're all looking very forward to. Just try and make it not too complex, please, because already my head's spinning. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Anytime, bud.